gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Hey folks, it's Nathan Fisher here and we have a very special show here for you today on Suplex Retweet Extra. In a collaborative effort between the two shows, you are not listening to the Monday Night Rewind, you are not listening to the Retro Review, because for limited time only, we have joined forces to bring you the Retro Rewind. (laughs) The two best teams colliding, what a time to be alive. (laughs) Yes, that's right, myself and Chris have joined forces with Ross and Jack to review two editions of WrestleMania from years gone by as we attempt to get into the mania mood despite COVID-19 running wild. And tonight, we begin with a review of WrestleMania 10. Yes, I'm, I'm so excited for this. I'm so glad someone did the, the Mania theme tune. It's Linda McMahon's theme tune. How can you not get pumped at the thought of Linda McMahon? <laughs> and on that note, it's time to introduce our esteemed panel. Unless you're Samoan... He will call you a fat bastard. It's Ross McLeod. <laughs> There's been so many times I've called someone a fat bastard on this show, despite being a fat bastard. <laughs> how are you, Nathan? I'm very well. How are you? Very, very well. Good to see you're still with us, despite being A, a key worker, and B, self-isolating. Yes, uh, I had a wee bit of a cold, chose to self-isolate. was better by Wednesday, so I did. Every key worker should be doing, I played Batman. For the past 48 hours. Can't think of many better ways to spend isolation and getting an old video game out, but I can think of one better, and that's reviewing WrestleMania 10. Introducing next, it's Ross's co-host on the Retro Review. He was unwell yesterday. Maybe eating too much or maybe too much poultry pumping. It's a poultry pump himself. <laughs> Jack Graham. Well, that chicken lies behind me, and I left that in January, and what happened? I got <laughs> ill for a few weeks, and then I get ill again. Just instant assumptions. <laughs> How are you, Jack? I'm doing very well, mate. Thanks for having myself and Ross on for a special episode for WrestleMania week. I'm buzzing. It's the first show that we've done together. I know. Let's make it one first to remember. Show. Yes, absolutely. And last but not least, the true cult of personality who does not say to his friend that he'll cover his legal expenses then change his mind minutes later once the trial has ended. It's my co-host, Chris Murray. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. It's funny you should say that. I was actually watching... Colt Cabana's Instagram, he does these like nightly Instagram lives where he basically goes through his followers, he does a live video and then gets one of them to co-host and he talks to them and he had this kid on and they were having a really good chat and the kid had like a musical instrument and he was about to play some music for Colt and he was like, I actually know someone that you know, we have a mutual friend and he was like, oh really, who's that? And he was like, 
you know, Phil Brooks. And he went, and <laughs> X him. And he just closed him right down in the middle of the feed. I felt bad for the kid because I don't think he meant it at all. But yeah, there's definitely still some tension there. That's brilliant. So yes, WrestleMania 10 on a week that saw everything changes by Take That reached the UK number one spot in the singles chart. WrestleMania 10 emanated from Madison Square Garden in New York City on March the 20th, 1994. 18,000 capacity crowd in MSG, just under a million dollar gate, which equated to 420,000 pay-per-view buys. The 10th Mania in the same building as the first, same as the 20th, more on that later. So yeah, 1.6 buy rate. Interesting note, this is the first WrestleMania without Hulk Hogan. He'd be in every WrestleMania from 85 to, of course, 93. Bobby Heenan's not here. Gene Okerlund's not here. So yeah, a lot of missing faces from Mania's gone by. Just going to open up to the panel. First of all, do you think this is a, a very transitional Mania in that regard? I don't think it's a transitional mania. I think they do their best to bring back loads of part-time stars and, you know, the Falls Count Anywhere stipulation, the two WWE title matches, which had never been done before, the first ever televised ladder match. They did quite a bit to make it seem massive. I also commend them, you know, throughout the show, we see WrestleMania Moments, sponsored by Coliseum Video how they managed to cut Hulk Hogan out of just about everyone, despite main eventing nine consecutive WrestleManias. There's something weird about seeing WWE celebrate a 10th anniversary. Like, WWE and WrestleMania just seem like institutions that are always there. 10 and WWE years, you know, doesn't seem that long. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Hogan, by this point, most likely to be in talks with WCW by March 94, I imagine. Also not long before the Vince McMahon stereo trial begins. It's an interesting fact as well. So yeah, we'll go straight into the show itself. You mentioned earlier, Ross, a short and sweet intro package, 10 years in the making. Bret Hart, Yokozuna, Lex Luger all staring into the abyss. As well as a <laughs> short recap of WrestleMania 1. Vince McMahon and Jerry King Lawler on commentary there, of course, regulars in the Monday Night Rewind. We are reviewing Raw from 985 just now. Full gusto introduction from Vince McMahon. Welcome to WrestleMania 10. What did you guys make of the, the introduction to this? I thought it was good. I, I was really happy that the King was here. Now, it wasn't obvious just from watching this pay-per-view, but the King had actually been off TV for a lot of the period just before this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't dive into it because it's a pretty awful story, but he'd been off the WWF for an extended period due to legal issues. And oh, as right. well as... Okay. Exactly. And as well as that, Bobby Heenan had just left... And I think it was maybe like two weeks after Survivor Series back in November. So they were struggling. They were massively struggling for commentators. Jim Ross wasn't quite ready yet. Gorilla Monsoon was massively past it by this point. So Vince had been getting by with Ted DiBiase commentating on the Rumble. He had IRS doing a bit of commentary on Raw as well. And I was delighted that basically in the weeks just prior to WrestleMania, all of the charges against Jerry Lawler were dropped and he was able to just come back. And I think that he brought so much to this show, which I think was quite Mm -hmm. essential. I think they would have maybe made him wait had it not been for what he mentioned, you know, JR not ready, Gorilla Monsoon massively passed it despite being at ringside. He's got the Macho Man wrestling. A bit ironic that Macho Man is on commentary because he's deemed too old, whereas Mm -hmm. at this point in the timeline, he is two years younger than current WWE champion Brock Lesnar. I know, yeah, it's insane, isn't it? So it just shows how times have changed. I mean, a guy at Macho Man who, we'll get onto that later, but even going to mention it now, like me and Chris are watching just a year after this 
like 18 months, October 95, if we are in our timeline, and he's, he can still go. So it's crazy how he was considered too old at this time. Yeah, WCW is some of his best work, and yet, obviously, you, you feel bad that he has to leave to yeah. do what he loves. I think I quite liked a lot of the throwbacks back to the kind of the first WrestleMania. It was kind of building up. It made it seem as if this was like kind of the event, as if like everything that's happened like from like previous WrestleManias up into this, this was like the kind of yeah. the pinnacle moment of wrestling. It kind of encapsulated that like kind of straight away with what the first bout was going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Madison Square Garden is packed here tonight. And I mentioned earlier about there have been four hundred twenty thousand pay-per-view buys. This would actually start like a, a downturn in terms of Mania buys, and that wouldn't pick up again until Mania fourteen. It would keep going down until Mania 14 when it gets like 700,000 buys I think so very like start of the declining period here and it's probably the last hurrah before that downturn so yeah we're going to the singing of America the Beautiful it's not Johnny B. Bad it's Little Richard and I could not make out a word what this guy was saying I'm so chuffed you said that first thing I wrote down was who invited Johnny B. Bad I've got in my notes the man Johnny B. Bad and Randy Watson from Coming to America mimicked their gimmicks off. <laughs> I watched Coming to America for the first time like a month ago. Totally get that reference. When I flicked it on the other night to watch it and he just started singing two lines in, I just skipped it. If I can't hear the words, I'm not listening. Very bad lip syncing as well. Yes, yes, clearly doesn't do this live. There's a bit where it cuts to like, a group of Japanese fans in the front row, they just don't know what's going on. <laughs> I don't know what law it is that says just because you're older than me that that makes you better than me it doesn't make you better than me Brett and you've held me down all my life and I'm coming at you Brett at Wrestlemania 10 and I'm gonna beat you brother and it's Bret Hart who we kick off with next. Chris, you'll be happy with this. Bret Hart versus Own Hart is our first match of the night. Yeah, I mean, I have been very vocal on the seven or eight episodes we've done so far of the Monday Night Rewind about how Bret Hart has just not been used enough. And yeah. I think Ross correctly pointed this out to us just before we started recording this show. It's like, you better been happy with this. You get two Bret matches. <laughs> but yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. The whole backstory of this WrestleMania is absolutely excellent. There's so many different storylines going on and I think I need to leave the Brett title story and the Lex title story till later. For now, I'll just tell you about the backstory of Bret Hart versus Owen Hart. So it actually dates back all the way to Survivor Series when Brett teamed with Owen and two of the other Hart brothers. They were teaming up to take on Shawn Michaels' team. It was basically Shawn Michaels and three jobbers. It was originally meant to be Jerry Lawler and three jobbers, Mm -hmm. but Jerry Lawler got taken out due to the legal issues, which we've already (laughs) mentioned. So during the match, right, Owen gets whipped into Bret Hart. Bret Hart falls off of the apron onto the guardrail, injures his leg, I think it is. In the confusion immediately afterwards, Owen gets eliminated from the match. Now, the Hearts would go on to win the match, but Owen was the only brother that got eliminated and he ended up just getting in Brett's face and giving him tons of dog's abuse for it. So, in the weeks following, in an interview with Vince McMahon on Superstars, Owen challenges Brett to a match. He just wants to prove that he can beat him and, you know, take the spotlight off him a wee bit. Brett responds by saying that people would love to see that match and I've never backed down from a challenge, but under no circumstances would I ever step in the ring with my own brother under no circumstances. This is as far as this will go. 
a few weeks go by and then after the Christmas period, I think it's the 1st of January episode of Superstars, Brett and Owen all of a sudden are cutting a promo together, which is potentially the best promo that both wrestlers ever do in their whole careers. The the little nuances that are lettered throughout the promo is just absolutely fantastic. Brett kicks us off by saying, we had a sit down and we feel a lot better about it. I don't want to find out who the better wrestler is. I don't want to fight my brother Owen. I want to channel our energy against the Quebecers for the tag team championships. And he says, united we stand, divided we fall. Owen adds into it, I said some things I shouldn't have said. It doesn't matter if they were true or not. You've got the rocket leading the way. And I've got my brother Brett hitched right behind me. So fast forward to the Royal Rumble. We get another promo just before their match with the Quebecers. And Brett says, to say we're overconfident would be an understatement. And then just starts listing all the teams that they're going to defend the belts to once they win them. He's like, we're going to face the Steiners. We're going to face the one, two, three kid and Marty Jannetty. And Owen says, this is the happiest day of my life and my greatest opportunity. Uh, do you guys remember the immortal line that Owen says that after the Royal Rumble match that I'll get to in just a second? <laughs> well, he actually, he actually gets another one in that just doesn't get as much attention as that one. He says, and tonight, Brett, I'm going to make you proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> At the Royal Rumble, during the match against the Quebecers, Quebecer Pierre goes for a big front splash, but Brett moves out of the way. And instead of going to tag Owen, Brett tries to go for the sharpshooter and he just collapses due to the damage to his knee from earlier on in the match. The ref immediately calls for the bell, electing to end the match due to Brett's injury. And Owen again is just beside himself with anger at the decision. He berates Brett until he can stand up and look at him in the face and then kicks Brett's injured leg out from under him. He <laughs> walks to the back, just screaming into the camera. He's shouting, why didn't you just tag me? You're just too damn selfish. All he had to do was tag me, but he's too busy trying to be the hero and fight the whole match himself. He gets backstage and Todd Pettengill's there. He interviews an absolutely outraged Bret Hart. He's tearing at his brother. He's saying the tag title match was the biggest match of Owen's life. He had the best partner in the world and his own brother. But you're too selfish. Your ego is too big. And you only worry about yourself. While all this is going on, they're bringing Bret from the ring who's having to be helped on a gurney because his leg is so destroyed. And then he says, I had a chance and you stripped it away from me. You're too selfish. And what is it he says next, Ross? And that's why I kicked your leg out of your leg. <laughs> Possibly one of the best lines in wrestling history. So Todd Pettengill says, you've obviously cost Brett a shot at the championship tonight. There's no way he can compete in the Royal Rumble later on. But Owen correctly points out, he says he cost himself the tag title belts and he cost his own brother, someone who's never had a taste of a championship in the WWF. DiBiase's on commentary. He fully stands behind Owen Hart. He applauds his decision. He says, if that's what it takes to get the job done, then that's what you have to do. That kid just woke up. So in the two weeks after the Royal Rumble, the match gets confirmed. Bret Hart versus Owen Hart, if necessary. And we'll find out why I've said if necessary a little bit later on. So there we have it. We go to ring announcer. It's not Finkel. It's Bill Dunn. Interesting, like not Bill Dundee. Yeah, <laughs> nah, just plain old Bill Dundee. I couldn't find anything on this guy. I tried doing some research on him. Things around for like one year and then just disappeared. 
See, before we dive into the match itself, I actually mm-hmm. wrote a little bit of a quiz for the three of you. I wanted to oh ask my you... God. If... <laughs> <laughs> it's just one question. Can you name three other matches of relatives that have taken place at WrestleMania? Oh, are we counting Kane versus Undertaker? Yes, that's one of them. Right, so it's two right. left. Matt versus Jeff. Are they correct? Oh. WrestleMania 25. There's one other one which is, you know, some people have argued it's the best match of all time. Give you a clue. This one is relatives, but they're not brothers. Relatives, right. not brothers. It also arguably took place at the biggest WrestleMania of all time. Right, I'm just going to tell you because you all suck. I'm talking about Vince versus Shane, of course. Oh, <sighs> yes. Forgot that was a thing. You got two out of three. Two out of three, yeah. Me and Nathan can hold our heads high here. Jack, let the side down, son. (laughs) I'm sorry, I don't care about Vince McMahon and Shane McMahon. I'm sorry that's not in my repertoire of wrestling knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) You see Owen make his entrance first, and his music is fantastic. It's one of my favourite themes of all time. Love it. I watched the first hour of WrestleMania Sunday night and the next morning I woke up and I was generally just walking about, going about my day, just dun, 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 every two seconds. Brett comes out second and we have a monster pop for Brett here. He is definitely the guy at this point. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. I feel bad for Lex Luger and all this, but you can absolutely see why the locker room are like, you have to put this title on Brett. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So go to the match itself, lots of grappling earlier on. I thought this was fantastic. Really encapsulate the whole feeling of Buller versus Buller. I mean, Chris mentioned earlier about it's been one of the many like, relative feuds at Mania, but I think it's probably the best example of a Buller versus Buller feud. And perfect way to implement it. Yeah, I think just for in-ring work rate, I mean, best in the world, Shane McMahon versus Vince is a bit better. But, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in terms of Brawl versus Brawl, you can absolutely see 26 years later why this is still considered up there, not only as the best Mania matches, but still considered the best Mania opener. There isn't a better way to kick off a WrestleMania than like this match. I don't think there ever will be a better way to kick off Mania having the kind of blood feud between these two going on and for the implications for what it has later on in the card as well. It's uh, nothing quite compares to it. Yeah, Owen's really good at playing that annoying younger brother. You know, he's there's kicks to the face. There's an amazing sequence which ends with Owen pulling Brett's hair to gain the advantage and Brett's look at disbelief like, oh my God, you actually went there. Fantastic. So yeah, great back and forth from both guys. Some fantastic moves from Owen as well. We see the spinning heel kick, a great looking German suplex, just stuff that you wouldn't really see the WGF at this point in time. Would of course not be a Bret Hart match without Vince's co-commentator Jay Law making comments about Helen Hart and her age. Some fantastic lines here. One of them being, I can see Helen Hart just now. She's sitting two inches on the TV screen. That's the only way she can see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, He's so good, like you can see why they brought him back. As soon as the charges are dropped, you're just like, absolutely, get him back here. Yeah. Had it been Gorilla Monsoon or someone else, it just it wouldn't have had the same effect. Vincent Heen, I think, just on the spot of commentary, I think Vincent Heen would have been an interesting combination. But yeah, Vincent Lord does work well. We see some more big moves from Owen, a tombstone for a top rope splash, but he does miss Brett with some moves of his own, the five moves of doom. Inverted atomic <laughs> drop, the Russian leg sweep, the backbreaker, elbow from the second rope, 
So exchange of sharpshooter attempts on both guys. A dive from Brett to Owen on the outside. And this is the key point in the match, guys. Brett injures the knee and Owen instantly attacks it. Love it. It's so smart because there's so many points at which Owen does stuff that he would only do because he's his brother. He knows Brett's weak points to exploit. He knows how to reverse his his moves. There's no person that knows his career better than Owen does. There's one point where I picked up on, like, this is so niche, but I love the kind of parity of their actual outfits. Like, Brett yeah. wrestles in all in pink with some black bits, whereas Owen wrestles all in black with some pink bits. It's almost like yeah. Spider-Man and um, mad evil Spider-Man. Venom, yeah. Venom, that's it, that's it. If you want a more on-the-nose reference, Flash and Reverse Flash, because Flash is red with a bit of black and yellow, whereas Reverse Flash is yellow with a bit of black and red. I've made myself just look like a massive nerd there, just like, <laughs> find actually, an issue 22. Nerd. <laughs> I do like how, obviously, throughout the match, you see Brett going for things and Owen constantly goes, that's not going to work on me. That's not going to work on me. They just know each other so well. What I liked it from this point was I felt like from the, the attacking of the knee, the crowd seemed to get more into it as well with the channel at Let's Go Brett. And then in like a response to that, Owen seemed to kind of play up the kind of heelish fact more. But like, see any move they put on, they like put on the figure four leg lock. He just started celebrating it. Like, yep, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. I did that. And I thought that's just it's brilliant heel tendency to get the crowd to actually hate on you and to get Brett more over than what he is. Yeah, some excellent heel stuff. That's why there's a low blow to Brett to escape a sleeper hold. And even the manner of the victory, you know, Brett goes to the victory role and then Owen basically just counters it, sits on for the one, two, three. You know, it's perfectly heelish way to win. I like how Brett's two biggest matches, the matches that are always talked about, are against his brother in law, David Boy Smith. And his brother, Brett Hart, eh, sorry, Owen Hart, and each time Brett has lost because he's went for a roll-up and he's been caught by the other mm-hmm. person. Also, obviously, you mentioned the heelish way to win. I like how, to sell the story, because we'll get into it later, leading into the rematch that would take place at the SummerSlam 94, it would have been so easy for Owen to reach out and grab the rope. Had it been any other match, he probably would have. But this match was about proving he was better than his big brother. He has to win fair and square. Building on what Ross said, I absolutely loved the finish of the match. Of course, Owen would beat him with that move. Like for Brett, it's so high risk, high reward. Like he's up on Owen's shoulders and Owen has seen it a million times. He knows exactly what to do to stop that move and reverse it into a move that means he can pin Brett. I know Jack said that this is a blood feud earlier, but I sort of took it in a different way. It's almost like Owen's not even heel here, in my opinion. He just wants throughout this whole thing to show that he's a better wrestler than Brett. There's no steel Mm. chair shot trying to beat the absolute shit out of him. He's not trying to break his arms or legs. He just wants to prove that he can pin him in a match. And then he does. Like, Brett's absolutely dejected. He knows straight away that he set up Owen to beat him. And Owen even says after the match, he's a great fighter. I don't want to take anything away from him. And there's a good little bit of commentary from Vincent King as well. Vince says, Owen unquestionably stepped out of the shadow of Bret Hart and King adds, oh, yeah. he didn't just step out, he jumped out. Yeah, that was, that was a great line, wasn't it? Yeah. The commentary, not so much Vince, but Jerry Lawler after this, because the crowd are stunned because obviously they're there to see Bret become WWF champion. 
and they're like, God, if he's lost this match, you know, what's going to happen later on? You know what I mean? Because all the signs, all the booking from SummerSlam onwards have been pointing to Lex Luger becoming WWF champion. And you can see the crowd yeah. just deflate at the thought of, he's lost this, can he win the WWF championship? It's the mix, it's the contrast of the stunned silence of the crowd and Jerry Lawler laughing his arse off on commentary because his nemesis, Bret Hart's been beat. Obviously, as Chris mentioned, it's a high-risk, high-reward move that Bret's went for. It's the move that won Bret Hart King of the Rings eight months prior, and yet ironic at the next pay-per-view. Owen will go on to win King of the Ring after reversing the move that yeah. Bret won, it won the previous year's King of the Ring. I mean, yeah, I think we've all, just like going over the match itself, I think we all love this match. Fantastic. Is it the best ever WrestleMania opening match? Or the best ever pay-per-view opener by that regard? I don't know if there's anything that I can think of like off the top of my head that can like be even close to the meaning behind this match. Even the lengths and what they were able to do in the match was like there wasn't many this was just like proper like wrestling. There wasn't many spots there was like outside the ring. It all kind of took place in the ring, trying to one up yeah. each other with their moves and whatnot. I feel that like for what they're able to do, I don't think there's much that can compare. Mm-hmm. I think what Jack said holds weight. I just I, I think it's based on like when you get into wrestling, maybe, or what you look for. And this is certainly, you know, storyline wise. I don't think you'll get a better story, but obviously, in the history of WrestleMania, there have been matches, you know, like big multi-man ladder matches to open the show, which are like sort of demolition derby sort of things. If you like that, yeah, certainly still holds up technically. They've all agreed, just a fantastic match. And so following that, we have Bam Bam Bigelow and Luna Vachon versus Doink and Dink. Now, I don't know much about Doink the Clown, but from what I've heard, Heel Doink far better than Face Doink. Yeah, Heel Doink <clears throat> sort of came in, I think, just before WrestleMania 10. Uh, sorry, WrestleMania 9. And the whole gimmick was very much on the edge of just being like, uh, what do you call it, it? But yeah. then they sort of, they dialed it back. There was a segment where he was having an interview with Jerry the King Lawler. And he just started taking the piss out of him, basically. And then after that, it just became that he was face. And the backstory of this match isn't particularly extensive either. Doink's just been pissing Bam Bam off for months with, like, you know, chucking water over him or chucking confetti over him. Just standard Doink business. Bam Bam was supposed to get his hands on Doink at Survivor Series, where each of them were going to lead a four-man team into the match. But nobody knew who was going to be on Doink's team. They just kept saying that it was going to be the four Doinks. So <laughs> it was absolutely excellent. Doink cut this excellent promo on, you know, the sort of uh, split screen Titantron that they have in the olden days, where it's just like four screens taped together. <laughs> yeah. Where, well, basically he had like one Doink on each of the screen, but it was all just him. And they would each point to each other and say, oh, you'll be in the team or you'll be in the team. And it's just this excellent promo that must have been so hard to edit. And turns out Bam Bam was even more frustrated in the end because when it got to Survivor Series and they had the 4v4 match, Doink wasn't even in it. He just sent out Men on a Mission and the Bushwhackers in Doink masks. (laughs) So after this, this is where things get serious. A WWF order was brought in that... This is it. It's been going on for 12 months. There can only be one doink in the WWF after just years of different doinks appearing alongside the main doink. And shortly before the end in 1993, Santa Claus appears on Raw to deliver a present to doink, which turned out to be a mini doink who was (laughs) 
played by Canadian wrestler Claude Giroux. He wasn't allowed to call him Doink, so he named him Dink. It is as simple as that. So, <laughs> so then at the Royal Rumble, Doink and Dink come out. They briefly cause Bam Bam further annoyance before he's just like, I have had enough of your shit. And he picks up Doink and eliminates him with a huge press slam. And then this match was officially confirmed on the 28th of February Raw. And that that's really it. <laughs> just to pick up on what Chris was saying there, the Doinks versus Team Bam Bam was voted Wrestling Observer's worst match of 1993. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all because it was absolutely ridiculous. It's a shame. It's, it's a, it's, you can see the funny side of it. You know. It's one of those ones, it worked for the time, but it just, Dave Meltzer was probably tape trading for Japan and just discovering <laughs> Japan at the time, so all of a sudden WWE's not cool with him anymore. I was speaking to um, ICW commentator James R. Kennedy about WrestleMania 10 the other night, and so it's a second-hand story, it's a friend of a friend's story. His friend James was at the Mania 10 Fan Fest, which they'll discuss later on. Oh, yeah. And I got to play WrestleMania, the arcade game with Bam Bam Bigelow. And he was so excited to talk to Bam Bam. And he says to Bam Bam, so are you excited about your WrestleMania match? And Bam Bam Bigelow looked at a child and said, dude, I'm wrestling a fucking clown. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) At least he's still got to play WrestleMania, the arcade game with Bam Bam Bigelow. Not many people can say that, you know what I mean? I've actually got my notes, Bam Bam deserves better. I thought, I mean, it is what it is, it's a comedy match, there's quite a lot of funny spots, you know, this is going to sound so wrong, but I love it when like midget wrestlers just get barred, basically, and I love it when <laughs> starts kicking the hell out of think. just hilarious. It's, it's ironic, you say Bam Bam deserves better, Bam Bam would be the second person after King Kong Bundy to wrestle a midget, and then main event, Wrestlemania, as the next year he would main event WrestleMania yes. 11. That's right, yeah. I just thought Doink and Bam Bam and the other ring, they're quite competent working together. I thought it was fairly entertaining. But yeah, like it was a comedy match. I thought the ending was a bit weird. They both try to splash Dink, who rolls out the way of Bam Bam, then gets get splashed by Luna. She does not look amused at that point. She kind of just yeah. throws him out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> This sort of made me think that they messed up the finish a bit because it was all a bit murky and they were all a bit all over the place and then the match just ends really, really quickly. Yeah, it was a nice looking diving headbutt from Bam Bam. I'll give him that. All I know is I'm glad that it was only like a five minute match. I'd like yeah. going to watch more than five minutes. It was basically fun seeing Bam Bam Bigelow and Doink because they're both really, really competent wrestlers. But overall, this just didn't even need to be on the cards. But the other side of the coin is I do feel like most Manias seem to have a match like this where it's a bit daft and the crowd just sort of need it and the card just sort of need it to not fill space as such, but just something that isn't a really intense, passionate uh, backstory feud, something uh, a little bit different. So as Luna Bam Bam go down the ramp, we go up into the stands and it's Bill Clinton. Or is it? The crowd, or is it? The crowd certainly seem to think it is the pop for this guy. Jeez. See, I'm going to say this. The first shot of him happened, and it was the camera from the ring over to his box. I was like, how the hell did they get Bill Clinton yeah. to come to WrestleMania? I was just like, I can't believe he's there. That's insane. I checked when he became president. He became president like really shortly before this. I was like, oh my God, he must be so popular just now, and he actually got him to go to WrestleMania. That's mental. Why is IRS sitting next to him? Doesn't look a lot like him. His, 
impersonator Timothy Waters, and after a bit of research, he's still doing the same impersonating of Bill Clinton. He goes by the name Mr. President for Hire. That's fantastic. <laughs> we go from Bill Clinton and in the stands of IRS to a recap of Mania 3. You mentioned here at the start, Ross, no mention of Hogan, despite having undoubtedly the biggest moment of that show. Yeah, not even a mention of Steamboat either. You know, you thought yeah. we average being there, but obviously Steamboat's out of the company at this time. Andre's not in the best terms with Vince because he feels like Vince forced him to retire. They're on the outs with the majority of their people that made like the big moments happen in the early yeah. WrestleManias. It's how they managed to skirt the issue because they are either not on speaking terms or they're with the competitions so they don't want to give them the time of day. Yeah. Also as well, obviously it's a lot to do with the capacity, but WrestleMania 10 had 19% of the attendance that WrestleMania 3 had. Wow. <laughs> That's mental. Against Yokozuna, Vince McMahon, I hit him beat. I had an opportunity to go out there and three-peat as a World Wrestling Federation champion. I worked hard to get that done. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I hit him beat. I've been up and down the street enough times to know when somebody is beat. He was lifeless right there. I dropped the elbow on him in the middle of the ring, and I whooped him. One, two, three. Done deal. But somebody shattered my dream. Somebody close to me, yeah. And that is Crush. I've had ups and downs. Don't worry about it. I'll get over it, but not really. Everything's cool. I'll be back. The emotion and the burning desire that I have inside me right now will continue. And I'll be back. I'll get Crush guaranteed. And I'll get him at WrestleMania 10. But one star who is on the way out, but isn't quite yet, in his last televised WWF match, is the match man Randy Savage versus Crush. The absolute pop that the Falls Count Anywhere stipulation gets, and then the continued pop when Macho Man Randy Savage comes out. Like, it doesn't die down, it just keeps to that same level. You watch it back frustrated. Vince at this time is trying to bring in younger people. But at the same time, you're like, Savage is only 40 when you look at it from current WWE yeah. perspectives when Goldberg's 53 and the Universal Champion. It is just such a point of frustration, I think, for so many wrestling fans that this would be the last time you ever see Savage in the WWF. I mean, how did yeah. this one come about, Chris? Yeah, I'm completely not ready to say goodbye to Randy Savage yet, but nevertheless, we shall go into his final match, holding back the tears and with our heads held high. So... Crush originally came into the WWF as a member of Demolition. They were going for a good few years and one of them sort of had to stop wrestling. So they brought Crush in. He fought Doink at last year's WrestleMania. And then he also fought Shawn Michaels for the IC belt back at King of the Ring. There was an event called the Stars and Stripes Challenge on the USS Intrepid, which we're going to talk about a bit later on, where multiple wrestlers attempted to take part and a body slam challenge where they had to try and body slam Yokozuna. Now, Crush decided to enter this challenge and he actually gets Zuna off his feet, but he doesn't manage to slam him and he injures his back in the process. After basically becoming one of the guys that kind of had a shot at slamming Yokozuna, he actually gets a match for the WWF Championship against Yoko on the 12th of July, but he just gets destroyed 
by the champ in the process. He takes a whole bunch of Banzai drops and that combined with his back injury just puts him on the shelf. When Crush returns from injury in October, he focuses his attention on his former best mate, Randy Savage, who'd encouraged him to enter the Body Slam Challenge originally. Crush was mad he'd not contacted him during his recuperation and as a result of this, he aligned himself with Mr. Fuji and Yokozuna. Macho tries desperately to get Crush to back down. He says, every one of these people here in this arena have made mistakes and you're making one right now. Don't do this. So Crush relents and both wrestlers shake hands and they raise each other's arms before Crush turns on Savage completely and starts absolutely attacking him. He drops him on the guardrail and lacerates his tongue, which sounds absolutely brutal. Fast forward a few weeks, and on the February 28th, 1994 edition of Raw, Macho gets his shot at Yokozuna's WWF Championship. So, Macho hits the big elbow, and he's got Yoko down. All signs are looking to a new WWF champion, but just as he goes to pin him, Crush hits the ring and attacks Savage. So, at the Royal Rumble, Crush stops Yokozuna from losing the belt to The Undertaker, before eliminating Macho Man himself in the Royal Rumble. It's one of the most unexpected things that's ever happened. It actually happens during Doink the Clown's entrance. A lot of people just don't even see it. And the weeks after the Rumble, it's announced that Macho's going to take on Crush in a Falls Count Anywhere match. And the only catch is that the wrestlers have to make it back to the ring in 60 seconds after the pinfall. Now, Nathan Ross Jack, was this stipulation clear? during the match, because I didn't get it until I watched all the other shows. Yeah, I didn't have a clue. The announced false count anywhere. Like, I knew about it beforehand. That was only because people were talking about how silly a stipulation it was and how unclear it was. Basically, when Crush gets the first pinfall, I was expecting the match to be over. It's last man standing, then? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, this happened pretty it's much It's a lot of shit. It's a lot of shit. <laughs> 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 You cover them under right, you win Chris Savage just going after everyone at this point. He loves a fight and he certainly shows that tonight as well. But I mean, some nasty looking power offense from Crush as well. We get the slingshot into the guardrail, pins him on the three count, and then Savage starts to come back. But like, I mean, Jack's right, a stupid concept for the match, you know, and they wait 60 seconds for the guy to get in the ring. It's enjoyable brawling outside. I was thinking actually, they go around, they go to the backstage area. Is this the first time that we've seen a backstage brawl in the WF? Oh, that is a good question. We've sort of fights in the locker room, but we've not seen like anyone during a match take you as far backstage. Even fighting in the crowd at this point was relatively yeah. new. So yeah, Savage pins Crush after tying Crush to some sort of pulley scaffold thing. Immediately falls down when he lets go. Yeah, it was so frustrating because I was like, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to hang up his feet so he can't run back to the ring. That's that's a really good ending to the match. And then obviously it doesn't just quite land. Nevertheless, I actually really liked this match. Really? Yeah, the crowd were so confused throughout the whole thing. At one point, Savage hits the big elbow, but then he doesn't pin him in the ring. He like rolls him to the outside. Also, anytime there's a pinfall, nobody cheers. They have to wait for Fink to announce what's just happened. And then they go, oh, match is going to fall. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> But I thought overall, I was like, see, because it's a gimmick match, but it was relatively unique and new, I kind of liked it. There was one other thing I noted as well. 
King at one point when Crush is taking Macho to the outside. He says, he's probably got a plan out there in the audience to help him. I was like, Jerry, stop <laughs> stop revealing the secrets of wrestling. <laughs> I like how unsympathetic Mr. Fuji is when Crush gets pinned. He just kind of walks over to him and instead of gently pouring water on him, he just goes at and dumps yeah, it <laughs> right on his face. Ice cubes and all. See, the thing is with this match, it only got like 10 minutes. Let's see if it was able to do 15, 20 minutes. You could work better story into it to make the stipulation kind of make a better sense. Yeah. But for the time that it had, it was just, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy watching it. I was, I found myself really skipping it just because I can't remember. It doesn't make sense. I just didn't get it. But like thinking about it, if, if there was actually kind of adequate time for the match to happen properly, I think it could have been, it could be something great. Yeah, I thought I enjoyed the ending, like the fight in the crowd towards the backstage, Savage getting the win. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Savage's last match ending like this. Like you said, 15, 20 minutes. He, he could have got a good match out of Crush. Savage got good matches out of mostly anybody. Yeah, it, actually, it, it made me really sad when Savage goes up the ramp. I was just like, holy crap, that's that's it. So, yeah. I, I feel like I've probably watched all the high-profile matches and I loved all of his promos. And then this is it. Like It was made even more sad by Randy Savage's celebration. Of course, he goes into the Paramount Theatre, which I think is part of Madison Square Garden. And there's like a watch yeah. party happening. And he goes in and he says, "You ain't seen nothing yet." And I was just like, "Oh God!" Yeah. But but we have, we've we've seen it all. This is the final chapter for you. It just made me a little bit sad. It doesn't do Macho Man the sort of service when you think Ricky the Dragon, Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. Have you had to pick a Macho Man match from the WWF which you really really enjoyed and would say was his best match? What would you say it was? I'd go Mania Five. Against Hogan? Yeah. Yeah, good one, good one. Big fight feel. I'd probably say the same, to be honest. I think having watched back all those early WrestleManias over the last few years, I think I would maybe put Mania 5 second to Mania 4 when he actually wins the belt against Ted DiBiase. I love that match, and it was just a culmination of all of his hard work up to that point. But yeah, basically any Macho Man match from, what, 87 or whatever it is, all the way through, to this one in 1984 you can watch any of them and they're all dynamite it's such a shame that this would be the end of his career but wait we've got his whole run in wcw to look forward to (laughs) yes much more randy savage to come and more bill clinton to come as it seems he's up in the skybox with todd pettingill bill quotation marks wouldn't miss wrestlemania for the world and irs thanks them for raising taxes now, I thought this was a bit of a, a political dig because Vince, obviously a known Republican, known for lowering taxes. A dig at Clinton for reasoning, perhaps. I don't know. After Bill Clinton, we go to a look at what Ross mentioned earlier, WWE Fan Fest. Of course, a precursor to Access, where you can get a photo with the smoking guns. Call a classic match. Dunk, doink. And step into a casket with Paul Bearer. I mean, present day, stepping into a casket with Paul Bearer sounds terrifying, but... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think if I was at WrestleMania 10, I'd probably pay a tenner not to get a picture with the smoking guns. <laughs> <laughs> this actually looks okay, you know what I mean? It looks sort of low-key. It looks like just a bunch of kids running about having fun. They're probably the only people that would enjoy the sort of the lower-card guys that are there. Yeah, I noted that this looks better than the current weekend that they plan less smarks. <laughs> yeah, but when you said no smarks, immediately more enjoyable. 
So up next, it's our first title match of the evening for the WWF Women's Championship, Leilani Kai versus the champion, Alundra Blaze. Leilani Kai, and this is a reference for like a current hip and with it reference that you kids will get. Leilani Kai looks like Carol Baskins from Tiger King. Oh, I've not seen it. I've oh. not seen it yet. See, that's how current it is. You guys aren't <laughs> hip with it. You people that are 30 plus. Don't worry, I'm 23, I got it. <laughs> yes, there's my demographic there's my jack <laughs> <laughs> no I'm just looking at it going who does she look like and then it was when I went on to Netflix after watching Wrestlemania I was like and I seen the advert and I'm like it's her it's it's that bitch Carol in 30 years when they're listening to this podcast they're going to hail you Ross as the trailblazer to me and Nathan's Hogan and Randy Savage yes I, I was sitting here the Brett just waiting for my time to host Chris obviously the women's division in WF at this time's it's not really very extensive, but was there any sort of build-up to this match at all? As we've seen on the Monday Night Rewind, the women's belt just isn't a thing in wrestling. Mm-hmm. On Raw on the 21st of February, so in between the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, it was announced that Alundra Blaze would defend the title. She wasn't there. It was just mentioned. It wasn't announced who she was going to be facing. Mm-hmm. I think two weeks later, on the 7th of March, what, 10 days before WrestleMania, it was confirmed as Leilani Kai. The only interesting thing about this whole thing is that Leilani Kai defended the women's belt at WrestleMania 1. She mm-hmm. lost the WWF Women's Championship to Wendy Richter, which was like a huge deal at the time because it's like this match is like part of the reason that wrestling is big. It had Cindy Lauper involved and Lou Albano, yeah. and it was a huge deal. But, I mean, it's been nine years since that happened. She followed up that match by going on to be a tag team called the Glamour Girls with Judy Martin, and that's basically all that has happened in the last nine years. And, yeah, just basically 10 days before the pay-per-view, they said, okay, Leilani Kai versus Alundra Blaze. Yeah, it's kind of typical of the way they booked the division at the time, isn't it? I mean, impressive pyro for Alundra Blaze, at least. Yeah, I actually thought that, like, Alundra Blaze for... The cards that she was dealt here, I thought she performed spectacularly. I think she could have been a phenomenal wrestler had either WWF or WCW actually had a women's division when she was in either of their companies. See, I need to disagree. See, watching this match, Alundra Blaze, I think, is awful. Like, there's a reason she's rarely mentioned, and it's not because of the title and the bin stunt. She's just, you you look at her and you look at Lani Kai. They were both awful. Like, I know it's the sort of women's division at the time that as soon as they have a woman that wants to wrestle, it's like, right, cool, get her on TV. So they didn't get, obviously, as much training and as much on-the-job mm-hmm. training. But she's just awful here. Very all-the-time commentary, though, by Jerry Lawler that I didn't agree with. Yeah. A Linder Blaze could star in TV westerns if she had two more legs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really enjoy it. The crowd weren't into it. There wasn't even anything built up for the commentary team to kind of suggest that this was like huge. It was just as if it was there and that was it. Yeah, it's funny you say that actually. Vince says during the commentary that Alundra Blaze is really taking the World Wrestling Federation by storm despite being mentioned on zero shows or pay-per-views for months. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a great match at all. I thought Alundra Blaze had some good bouts of athleticism though. There's a really nice Frankensteiner at one point as well as a roundhouse kick. I liked her German suplex that she won with. Yeah, oh yeah, that too, yeah. Let's get the spirits up, guys. It's our next title match. Men on the mission. Mabel and Mo versus the Quebecers. Mabel, a favourite of yours, Ross. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I started Fissamania 
on this podcast. It was ironically on a show you hosted, the Hardcore Championship oh, yeah. Show. Yes. So we're, ah. we're kind of coming full circle. Viscera, an absolute trailblazer on WWF, didn't get the juice that he should get. It's amazing the longevity Mabel has in WWE, you know, 14 years later in the same arena in 2008, he's in the Royal Rumble match. Like, it just shows how long they had with him, how many chances they took with Mabel. It's ironic in an era, you know, you read dirt sheets and it's like, Vince has given up on Ricochet, Vince has given up on Cedric Alexander. But in an era where Vince is so quick to throw his new toys aside, Viscera gets sacked and came back and sacked and came back and sacked and came back so many times and it just didn't work any time. Yeah. He certainly looks ridiculous in the tarries we're in just now. Not as ridiculous as Oscar, though, who runs out of breath while rapping. <laughs> and he's not even the fattest one there. Maybe he's got a full mole, a body weight on Oscar. Yeah, I mean, the Quebecers get the jump on men a mission to start the match here. The Quebecers being, of course, Pierre and Jacques. Pierre, of course, now PCO. You can check our interview with PCO on our Super X Retreat main feed back catalogue. Yeah, it was Scotty did the interview, wasn't it? Yeah, Scott yeah, did that. Yeah. Got a free T-shirt out as well. I think Jack got a free T-shirt as well. Oh yeah, I was saying I still got mine. I was going to get it before the COVID nineteen pandemic happened when it was meant to be a kind of the last main show recorded that we recorded at the studio, and then Sarah wasn't able to make it, and I've not been able to catch her since. And now we're all in lockdown, and she's got like two T-shirts now, and I've got none. At least you're going to get a T-shirt. Me, Nathan, and Chris missed it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Quebecers get a jump on. Mabel and Mo, but they quickly regain control. Some great power displayed by Mabel. I mean, the guy can barely move, so just gonna people are just gonna bounce off him. Yeah, it's sort of like a lower card version of Yokozuna. You know, Yokozuna did have some wrestling moves, but he couldn't go for an extended period of time. And Mabel yeah. was the same. Chris, we've discussed on Monday Night Rewind. We were talking about PG-13, who incidentally have the same theme music as Men on the Mission, how that's Vince's idea of what is street. <laughs> and now <laughs> Men on the Mission, another idea in Vince's mind of what is street. Don't get me wrong, I enjoyed the entrance. I can get on board with the entrance. It's fun. If you're in the, the actual crowd, I bet you'd stand up and throw your arms in the air, throw your arms like you just don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a question for all of you. If you only had to listen to one song for the rest of your life, would you listen to Men on a Mission's entrance or R Truth's entrance? Oh, Men on a Mission, absolutely. Men on a mission. Yeah, Men on a Mission. Right, it's a clean sweep because I 100% would as well. <laughs> <laughs> there are some good spots in this match. We do see Jacques propelling Pierre onto Mo from outside, some sort of springboard dive, but Jacques being the springboard pretty much. It's a really impressive. Huge double suplex to Mabel as well. That was pretty cool. I absolutely loved all of the Quebecers team moves. I thought they were absolutely amazing. Yeah. That They do a supporting body drop thing. They do a supporting body drop thing to the outside. And then they do a supported front flip thing. Which I actually researched. It's <laughs> called. It turns out it's called a flip flop fly. Oh, adding that to the repertoire. What I found funny about it was... I'm currently at the point in Retro Review where Raven returns to WWF as Taz's tag team partner and Johnny Polo is on the outside as the manager and you're just looking at this guy going, this is a future ECW and NWA yeah. champion when he goes to TNA. 
this three team is so weird. It's a former Intercontinental Champion, which they don't reference. It's yeah. a future Ring of Honor World Champion. Who could have foreseen that? And then you've got Johnny Polo, soon to be Raven, who revolutionizes ECW, goes to WCW and wins a US title, comes to WWE and wins about 24 hardcore titles and has multiple big feuds with people and then goes on to TNA and has massive feuds there with the likes of Abyss, wins the NWA title a few times, I think, as well. It's so weird to think like this team just have so much history in it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, apparently that is strange. Yeah, a horrible-looking tag team finisher from Mayor on a Mission just basically throws Mo onto the camera for the Shaq eh, or Pierre. The winners are by count-out are Mayor on a Mission, Quebecers retain the title. Chris, I've, I've just realised, actually, I didn't actually go to you before about the backstory for this match. Well, that's excellent timing because turns out there's absolutely no backstory on this match. Like, genuinely, <laughs> uh, there's there's more evidence to support other matches than there is to support this one. On the first Raw, after the Royal Rumble, men on a mission faced the Head Shrinkers, and the Head Shrinkers won. They're basically not on any Raw for the rest of the run up to Mania. And mm-hmm. that's about it. Like, there was genuinely no reason for this match to happen. Yeah, it's pretty much a throwaway match, isn't it, for the tag titles? Just a cheap victory for the Quebecers. Apparently, they did actually win the tag titles by accident. I think it was a European tour. Yeah, and it was in the UK as well. They won them in London, and then they lost them in Sheffield. Yes, that's right, yeah. It's weird as well, though, men in a mission celebrating with the title after the match. Just like, yeah. <laughs> you lost. What is it about this time, you know? You've got Lex Luger celebrating as if he's won the WWE title at SummerSlam. And then you've got men on a mission. You know, you see Raven or Johnny Polo shouting, why do they have our belts? Yeah. Go get our belts back. Yeah, and it was the same last year as well. WrestleMania 9, Hulk Hogan and Brutus the Barber Beefcake beat IRS and Ted DiBiase, but I think it's by disqualification. Then just walk about the ring holding the tag belts like they won them. Lex Luger called heads, and ladies and gentlemen, heads it is! Lex Luger will face Yokozuna. It's been a long, long road. I guess it started at SummerSlam. Well, first of all, I feel very fortunate to be co-winner of the Royal Rumble. I feel very lucky to have won the coin toss and get this opportunity. Now, I don't take Yokozuna lightly at all. Let me tell you something, I plan on being in that last match in WrestleMania, and Bret Hart, I couldn't think of a tougher competitor to face than you right there. I wish you the best of luck. All right, thank you very much. So while that match basically had zero to no build up, well, it certainly does. The WF Championship, Yokozuna defends against Lex Luger. This is where we get to the real juice of this pay-per-view. Uh, I should point out as well, though, that just before this, they did the WrestleMania 6 promo, and it was at this point that I was like, oh, they aren't making Hogan look good. So it took me <laughs> six to realize, and everybody else, I think, got it after one. But yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. But yes, the Yokozuna and Lex Luger match has a phenomenal backstory. So we have to go all the way back to King of the Ring 1993. Yokozuna beats Hulk Hogan for the belt 
at King of the Ring 1993. And then afterwards, Hulk Hogan leaves the WWF and it's a new era and everyone's very excited. And Yoko declares via Mr. Fuji that Hulkamania is over. And that's when they hold this body slam challenge that I mentioned earlier on. It's held on the USS Intrepid. Mr. Fuji invites other competitors, NFL players to see if anyone can get Yokozuna off his feet. Now, nobody can do it. I mentioned earlier, Crush comes close. A couple of other wrestlers come close. But basically, Mr. Fuji thinks that his challenge has been completed and nobody can do it. But then at the last moment, a helicopter appears. And it's Lex Luger who manages to get in the ring and slam Yokozuna to the match. It's kind of more of a hip toss, but we'll let him away with it. This led to the start of the Lex Express, which was Lex going up and down the country in a bus campaigning for support in his match against Yokozuna. It would take place at SummerSlam for the WWF Championship, and all things pointed to Lex as the next WWF Champion. At SummerSlam, Luger was able to beat Yokozuna, but it was only by countout, because Luger hits him with his forearm, and at the time his forearm contained a metal plate, which he got put in after a motorbike accident. So Yokozuna falls out the ring, he's completely unconscious, handing the match to Lex Luger, but he wins the match by count out and doesn't win the belt. So at Survivor Series, Lex's All-American team defeats Yokozuna's Foreign Fanatics team. <laughs> After that match, he then enters into the Royal Rumble, where Bret Hart and himself are both declared winners after going over the top rope at the exact same time. Now, this is where it gets really, really juicy. On the 31st of January, 1994, President Jack Tunney declares that both wrestlers would be given the chance to fight for the WWF Championship at WrestleMania 10, and both would have to win two matches in order to leave WrestleMania with the belt at the end of the night. The order in which the matches would take place would be decided by a coin toss, as Ross mentioned earlier, and there was two scenarios that they set up. If Brett won the coin toss, he would get the first title shot, while Lex would face Crush earlier on in the night. And then the winner of the first title match would face Brett later on in the night. If Lex won the toss, he would get the first title shot while, while Brett would face Owen Hart earlier in the night. And then the winner of that would be in the main event. Now, of course, Lex won the toss and the order of the matches on the night was set. We got Brett versus Owen earlier on. And now it's time for Lex versus Yokozuna for the right to go on to face Brett Hart. So there we go. Very elaborate build-up to <laughs> the title match. But first of all, we've got some guest celebrities making their way down to the ring. Donnie Wahlberg from NKOTB. Can't call them new kids on the block, apparently. Danny from Blue Bloods was the special guest for your name, sir. <laughs> he certainly gets booed out of the building. Do you notice that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But somebody does get a huge pop. So we're turning special guest referee, Mr. Perfect. I was absolutely buzzing at this. I could not have been more excited to see him. I knew a lot about what was going to happen at this WrestleMania before I actually watched it, but I had no idea that Mr. Perfect was going to turn up. I was like, oh my God, he's back. Oh my God. Uh, little did I know how much he would factor into the finish of the match. Weird to think that even back then, they relied on the part-timer pop. <laughs> yeah. Nathan, I thought you'd like this because it factors into our 1995 timeline. Two mm-hmm. minutes into the match, Vince goes, the sweat is pouring off Yokozuna. <laughs> yeah, standard Yokozuna. Sweating, just standing there. But do you notice when, <laughs> when Lex Luger came out, Vince was trying so hard to put this guy over. Yes, yes, yes. He, he says it over the mic. But Lex Luger, I mean, 
he looked like he did not want to be there. In the though your title match at Mania, at least try to look interested. I just feel so bad for him. You can tell he's been told yet again you're not winning, and Brett's getting the big, you know, hurrah later on in the night. And it's, it's such a shame for the guy that Brett had been fucked over by Vince McMahon so many times in the whole Hulk Hogan scenario. Hulk Hogan at Mania Nine, and then Hogan not wanting to put him over at King of the Ring. Basically, the locker room revolted just to help one of its own. And Lex, unfortunately, got the shit end of that stick. Hogan, as usual, gets away with everything. And you can, t- obviously, Nathan says, try look interested. You can tell straight away when he comes out, he is not interested in this match. Yeah. He just did not, he, he wants out of wrestling. <laughs> he just wants to go home. Yeah, I mean, it's reflected in the match as well. I mean, they both start with punches, but a lot of rest holds in this match. It's very, it's boring. I think I thought it was a very, very boring match. The best thing about the match, I think, is Kurt Henning, which yeah. shines a light on how bad it is when the special guest referee gets all the attention. I thought that the run to the end of the match, like the closing sequence was very, very good, but the first sort of two-thirds of the match were a bit kind of boring. Yeah, certainly some discontent in the crowd. I mean, certainly they tried to get over that. Like, like, so it was the only man to have slammed Yokozuna. He does hit the power slam again, the body slam again, sorry, but it's not. It's a pretty poor body slam. Lola Fernley says it was a hip toss. He's adamant it was a hip toss. Um, <laughs> the, the end of the match itself, like Chris said, is pretty entertaining. Luger covers Yokozuna after punching Cornet and Mr. Fuji. Mr. Perfect, however, refuses to count. Instead, checks on both managers. Then disqualifies Lex for touching Mr. Uh, the referee as well. But it's quite a quite a delayed disqualification. It's like, right, Ashley, yeah, I'm disqualifying you. Then just leaves. I thought that the actual so see the moments just before the disqualification. I thought yeah. that the full the full story was excellent because see back at SummerSlam when Lex got his title shot, he hits Yoko with his you know metal plate forearm, and immediately Yokozuna falls backwards out the ring and he's unconscious. But I was like, oh, he hits him right in the middle of the ring this time. He's learned. And then Vince, as he's doing it, is screaming, yes, 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 yes. And I was like, this is perfect. Like, if they wanted to, they could have put the belt on him there. It would have been believable. But yeah, as you say, then we get the messed up finish with Fuji and Cornette and the disqualification. Had any of you seen this before? And did any of you know that any of this was coming? I hadn't seen it before, no. No. I hadn't seen the match before. I knew Yoko won by DQ. I didn't know it was by such a spectacular fuck-up way. See, despite knowing wrestling history and knowing the end of this pay-per-view and just generally knowing this match, I was like, oh my God, Lex, get him, pin him, you're going to win the belt. And then everything happens. I was like, no, Mr. Perfect, what have you done? (laughs) Yeah, they did such a good job of bringing Perfect back to seem like such a returning babyface. And then when he DQs him, you're like, Oh, that's right. You have always been a dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> it was echoed quite a lot with how the crowd reacted at the end, how deafening the like, bullshit was. Well, Perfect explains why he disqualified Lex, said that Lex put his hands on the official. Lex, absolutely apoplectic with this, and a mini brawl ensues between the two. So, yeah, it looks like we're going for a, a Luger Perfect feud, which is these two feuded before in WF. Is that right? Yeah, I think when Lex Luger first came in, I think he has a match yeah. with Mr. Perfect, and it's basically the Perfect versus Perfect gimmick. And because um, when Lex first comes in, it's all about the mirrors, and he's the narcissist and all that. Yeah. But or was that maybe last year's Mania? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was WrestleMania Nine. Ah, yes, yeah. See, I'm just looking up the pay-per-views that follow, and there's nothing with Perfect and 
Luger. I don't know if maybe they fight on Raw. Yeah, it's funny you should say that, actually. The whole plan coming out of this was to have Luger face Perfect on the WrestleMania Revenge Tour, which would have went around the US at the time, and then have them face off at a future pay-per-view. But Mr. Perfect actually would leave the WWF again before any of this would even happen. I think he just couldn't come to terms with a deal with them or couldn't get himself back from his injuries. His next match wouldn't be until, I think, Survivor Series 1995. So he's gone for a little while immediately after this. So it's almost like Lex got screwed here and it wasn't even for a really good reason, which made me dead sad. Yeah. It's one of those ones as well. Surely, fuck, you would have had all this stuff in place beforehand. You know what I mean? You can see why Vince contracts guys to look five-year contracts now. Or, you know, when, before bringing somebody in to do anything, he makes sure he has them for a while. You know what I mean? Because you look at this era, it happens quite a bit, that sort of thing. Yeah. So we go from the backstage mini-brawl between Perfect and Luger to Howard Finkel back in the ring with Harvey Whippleman, who runs down the Fink. <laughs> Um, ugly, bald-headed, monkey-faced banana nose. <laughs> what an insult, man. Monkey-faced banana nose. Such oh, patter. Ahead of his time. <laughs> Finko eventually loses it, pushes Harvey over, and out comes Adam Bomb. Runs out to threaten the Fink. Earthquake comes out, makes a save, and yep, basically hits the Earthquake splash for the three count. Would you believe <laughs> me if I told you that this match actually had a backstory? We'll go for it. It turned out because of what they had planned for Lex Luger, they needed a new schedule for WrestleMania for Ludwig Borga. If any of you seen him, he was a Finnish heel who came in around the time of, I think, Luger versus Yokozuna at SummerSlam. He got in Lex Luger's face. They had a bit of a thing. They faced each other and were the final two in the Survivor Series match with Lex Luger pinning Borga to win. So while Lex Luger was off dealing with Yokozuna at WrestleMania, the original plan was Ludwig Borga versus Earthquake at WrestleMania. Now, Borga actually injured his ankle in a match with Rick Steiner at Madison Square Garden. That was on the 12th of January, so one week before the Royal Rumble. He missed the pay-per-view completely, and then after he was healed up, the WWF just went, eh, actually, just don't come back. So the funny thing is, is Jerry Lawler at, I think, Survivor Series had said that Ludwig Borga is going to be the wrestler of the 90s and he was never back after his two appearances. See, the biggest shock to me is the fact that you look at Earthquake, he's been in the WWF for some time and at this point in time, he is only 30 years old. Jeez. Holy crap. See, when he first came in, it was feuding with Hogan. He was only like 23, 24. It's just the whole beard and the you know, balding at the top makes him look older. I never thought he was that young. Jeez. It's weird to think that he wouldn't let certain wrestlers wrestle because he thought they were too old. And it's when you look up people, you're like, oh my God, they were surprisingly young. Just on his Wikipedia page, John Tenta was 31 at WrestleMania 10. No, he was 31 that year. His birthday hadn't been yet. (laughs) Oh my God, he was 30 years. Oh my God, I am John Tenta. (laughs) (laughs) So we go from Earthquake squashing Adam Bomb to a Jim Cornette promo, or James E. Cornette rather, backstage. I mean, Cornette obviously problematic now, but we've said in the Monday Night Rewind, Chris, his promos at this time were good, going to excellent. I had to stop watching WrestleMania 10 to literally keep up with all the good bits of Jim Cornette's promo and like while I was writing them down. Literally, the whole thing is just genius. I was like, oh, Brett's not going to win anymore. 
Their mm-hmm. Jim Cornette has just convinced me they're going to somehow rewrite wrestling history from 26 years ago because his promo was just that good. Just every single little bit of it, he was just like, it was phenomenal. He explains what happened earlier. He says, oh, well, the guest referees were agreed on by both parties. So he's basically saying, well, Lex Luger, you're a fanny. And then he says, <laughs> he goes on to talk about Brett. He goes, it's no longer a question if you're going to come out of this with a title. It's a question of coming out of it with your health, your body, and your career intact. You've got the pain of losing to your brother and the pain of your knee coursing through your body. And then he goes on to talk about how Yokozuna is the most dominant force that's ever existed in wrestling history. He's hungry and he wants to be fed. I mean, save that for after the match, Yoko. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, Jim Cornette is so good at promos. Yeah, it's fantastic, wasn't it? I mean, his jacket as well. What a jacket. That's That's a WrestleMania jacket right there. Due to Shawn Michaels' failure to appear for a number of Intercontinental Championship defenses and his refusal to fulfill his contractual obligations, the World Wrestling Federation has no alternative but to suspend Mr. Michaels and thus vacate the Intercontinental Championship. What a night it was in the life of Razor Ramon, the brand new Intercontinental Champion. And it was just a perfect opportunity to do this match with both belts up there. And whoever goes up there and gets them is the one and only IC champ. There is only one undisputed World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion. And it is the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. Everybody listen to me. For too long, been two champions two belts. This Sunday, WrestleMania 10, the ladder match. The bad guy takes all the gold. And as it would turn out, it was sort of the, the match that WrestleMania 10 is remembered for. The, the most gratifying thing about uh, things like the ladder match is being the first guy you know, to be involved in those matches, to be the guy that's, you know, that gets labeled as the innovator. There can only be one first. There can only be one blueprint. In that respect, it's, it's always going to stand by itself. And to me, that shows a lot of trust from a company standpoint in me to be able to deliver on something like that. And that's stuff that you can, uh, you know, that you can really take a lot of enjoyment in. So your next match, our semi-main event for the undisputed Intercontinental Championship. It's the ladder match between Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon. Yes, I cannot be more excited for a match. Would you believe, right? I had it in my head that this match happened at Survivor Series, but then I think they had like a, a rematch ladder match or something like that, maybe? Yes, yeah, SummerSlam Summer 95, yeah. Aye, SummerSlam, that's what I meant. So I just completely forgot this was on the card. I was like, oh, it must be the title match up next. And then they were like, oh, it's the Intercontinental title ladder match. I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. But um, do you want to hear the backstory? Absolutely, go. We have to go all the way back to September 1993 for this one. In that month, Shawn Michaels was forced to vacate the WWF Intercontinental Championship by President Jack Tunney as he wasn't defending it enough. In reality... Sean wasn't happy with who he was dropping it to and he just kept refusing to do it and then eventually just got suspended for testing positive for steroids. So they pulled the belt off him. They had a 30-man battle royal to determine who the new champion would be, but what they did is they got it down to the final two and then had a separate match of the final two the week after. 
So the final two came down to Razor Ramon and Rick Martel. And then the following week, Razor defeated Rick Martel for his first ever Intercontinental Championship. So after that, Shawn Michaels came back to Raw in November and just straight up refused to recognise Razor as the new IC champ. He just kept carrying about his own belt and even used the bogus belt to help IRS beat Razor for the championship. But thankfully, during the match, the refs actually figured out what had happened and managed to get the belt back onto Razor without IRS actually ever being declared champion. It is cool though, if you go back and watch the Royal Rumble, there's a tiny little bit where IRS is holding up an IC belt, which he never wins in his career, but it's just cool to see it. On the 21st of February on Raw, Michaels interferes in Razor's match again, this time causing Razor and the 1-2-3 kid to lose their match with the Quebecers for the WWF Tag Team Championship. Razor was standing in for Marty Jannetty, who got fired that week, which I think is quite funny. Um, <laughs> and then after weeks of back and forth, a ladder match is finally declared for Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon. Both belts will be hanging above the ring, and the winner will be the undisputed WWF Intercontinental Champion. Just absolutely love it. So, yep, there we have it. Build up to the first ladder match in WrestleMania history. It's the second one after Survivor Season 92. There's some nice technical wrestling that kicked things off. We mentioned with Brett and Owen earlier how they know each other so well. These guys have been friends for years. A big choke slam from Razor. Diesel was sent to the back early on. I love. Razor's big slaps to Sean. I think he's one of the best at the punches and love his punches and slaps here. I don't think there's an aspect of this match that I didn't love. I even loved the way that they walked out of the ring. Sean goes to walk through the ladder, but then doesn't because he's too scared. And then Razor just confidently walks under the ladder, and it's the whole, you know, unlucky to walk under a ladder thing. We got the iconic Sean Michaels splash, which I think has just been replayed in slow motion for all of history. I loved the camera above the belts. I thought that was a really nice touch. I loved that Shawn Michaels just bumps like a boss for Razor. Just He takes all these big shots, as you said. He takes all these flips into the ladder. It's just it's just absolutely excellent. I love how one year later in the semi-main event, Diesel has went from being the hired goon of Shawn Michaels to defending his WWE title against Shawn Michaels. <laughs> yeah. Just looking at this going, this is not Diesel's final form. You know, this is Diesel with a mullet. Yeah, that's um, right, yeah. It's when he gets down to the sort of greasy, long black, Bret Hart style hair. That's when things happen. That's when Diesel's final form is reached. And it's just, it's so weird to watch this WrestleMania, knowing that in a year's time, the guy that fought the clown is going to be in the main event. Yes. And the guy who's the hired gun will be defeating the guy who's claiming he's the undefeated IC champion. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I mentioned Terrico Wrestling that kicked things off, and it's not long before we get into some brutal ladder offence. But even by 994 standards, this is pretty violent stuff. Razor Irish whips Sean onto the ladder. He goes over the top rope afterwards. You see a slingshot onto the ladder as well. 994, this WDF is something that you wouldn't expect to see. There's a brilliant bit where Sean drop kicks a ladder that Razor's standing on and Razor falls off and lands on the ground but the ladder stays perfectly in place in the middle of the ring. And I was like, oh, that's like a good lesson in Newton's transference of energy theory. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's what you thought at like like, like four years old when you watched that. Newton's theory, I I relate. (laughs) Another iconic moment from this match, the suplex off the top of the ladder by Razor. Fantastic. 
some great heel work throughout by HBK as well. He mimics Razor's taunt at one point for just coolly dropping a ladder on his head. End of the, to the match, shoulder badge to the ladder by Razor. Just knocks Sean off the top. He gets his foot stuck in the ropes. Then his arm stuck. Razor grabs both belts just before Sean can free himself. You know, fantastic. Definitely one of the matches of the night. Certainly stands up as one of the greatest ladder matches of all time. It's certainly a weird visual if you've never seen it before. You're expecting the sort of TLC pageantry. Every Raw and SmackDown before TLC, there's tables, ladders and chairs about the ring. Every ladder match, you know, there's about a thousand ladders. And it's just like, we have one ladder and we have a backup ladder. You know, it's a weird visual, but it's a perfect way of the saying, less is more. You know what I mean? Because they only use the one ladder and they use it so well. They use so many spots that might look commonplace at the time eh, for us, but at the time someone drop kicking a ladder to stop their opponent climbing was like revolutionary offense i think it still holds up vince gets a little bit overexcited during the match when michael's ass is exposed to the world oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh my <laughs> as you've said i i loved every single moment of this match it was an absolutely phenomenal contest you can absolutely see why people love this match so much i loved all the tiny little nuances of it like there's a bit where there's an iconic image of both wrestlers climbing up the ladder simultaneously and Vince is like, oh, Razor's a touch higher than Sean. And then Jerry's like, oh no, but Sean's a step higher. And it's just perfect. Yeah. I loved the ending sequence where like Razor is like trying to get Sean off the ladder by shaking it and he can't get him. So instead he just runs full pelt. He sacrifices his own body to get him to come down which I thought was a, a great image as well. Sean being trapped in the ropes was fantastic. And then the image of them of Razor holding both belts as well is just fantastic. Yeah. Jack, what did you think of this one? Aye, for me, this match in general, from the moment that like Chris alluded to it earlier on, when Sean was free of walking through the ladder, but Razor Ramon went right through it. That was the yeah. point that instantly caught for me that was like... This is going to be tense. I don't know what made me feel about that. That it was like it, for me that moment set the entire tone and pace of what the match was going to be. It felt rough. It felt real. It probably is one of the most iconic and maybe one of the best ladder matches to happen in WS tenure, maybe even WWE as well. It's a shame it was only just like fifteen minutes. Yeah. Well, speaking of that. 15 minutes, but apparently it's meant to be even shorter as the 10-man tag match, which Vince hypes up afterwards, gets cut due to time constraints. IRS head shrinkers Jeff Jarrett and Rick Martell were supposed to be taking on the 1-2-3 kid, Lucky Plug, the tanker, and the smoking guns. So yeah, according to Bob Holly in his book, the timekeeper Mark Eaton actually repeatedly instructed the ref to end the match, but apparently Razor and Sean just ignored them and kept on going. Good. I'm really yeah. happy they did that. Like, could not be happier. Yeah, screw the 10-man tag team match. Like, I would probably argue that this is the best ladder match in history. I'd probably say that. Because, like, think about it. You'd never have Jericho versus Benoit if you didn't have this. You'd never have TLC yeah. if you didn't have this. I just thought it was absolutely phenomenal. Loved it. No, I agree, yeah. I'd rather see that than a 10-man tag featuring Bob Holly and Tataka. <laughs> <laughs> this match as well, I think it was kind of a time of uh, everyone like kind of being in the bandwagon is like if you were asked as a kid who's your favourite wrestler it was a time of it being Shawn Michaels so to kind of see a, a childhood hero so to speak fail it yeah. kind of hit a lot of folk Bret Hart's got the sharp tutor on Yokozuna Mr. Fuji what's he doing oh man he threw something right in the 
Combat Champion, Yokozuna, unquestionably is a monster. The most powerful, the most intimidating, the most dominant force that's ever existed in wrestling history. The great, mighty Yokozuna. WrestleMania 10 stands to be one of the greatest challenges of my entire career. Because I was robbed of the World Wrestling Federation title one year from WrestleMania. I got what it takes to get past Yokozuna. I'm going to fight fire with fire. You are just another opponent, and I will wipe you out. You're looking at the World Wrestling Federation champion. All right, here we go. Our final match, the Hitman Brad Hart, and of course, Yokozuna. Bret Hart, you're going to have to deal with the fact that it's no longer a matter of you trying to win the title. It's a matter of you trying to keep yourself in one piece. He's going to chew you up and spit you out, Hart, and your career may be over at the biggest WrestleMania of all time. I can't wait to see it happen. Okay, one match that certainly takes place, the main event of the evening, Bret Hitman Hart versus Yokozuna for the WWF Championship. Oh my uh, God, we have made it. Uh, <laughs> just <laughs> this, relief, relief from Jack. I mean, I've I've enjoyed speaking up to this, but I don't know if I'm going to look forward to kind of talking about this match. No, it's. I mean, we we'll get on to it later. Certainly, I mean, the pre-match video. It's very, very generic, isn't it? It's very just highly video. Both guys get some guest celebs as well. Timekeeper is it Jenny Gard, Kelly from Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. Special guest announcer, the aforementioned Burt Reynolds from earlier. <laughs> Who does not look interested to be there <laughs> at all? <laughs> He's certainly phoning it in. Someone who's not phoning it in, though, he gets a huge pop. Rowdy Ruddy Piper is back. Special guest referee. Continuing from the first WrestleMania, obviously he was there at Madison Square Garden. He's back for the 10th. Fantastic. Yeah, I actually wrote down all in capitals. Oh my God, Roddy Piper is the special guest referee. I didn't know this was coming as well, much like Mr. Perfect Eleron in the night, and I was just so, so, so excited. So... I've told you the backstory of Owen Hart and Brett. I've told you the backstory of Yokozuna and Lex Luger. But do you want to hear the backstory on Brett Hart and Yokozuna? Of course you do. So this is this is the biggest story of the night. This is the biggest story of arguably the decade so far. It's the biggest thing that's happened in the 90s for the WWF. So you have to actually go back to 1992 when Bret Hart defeated Ric Flair for the WWF Championship. It was not on television. It was released on a videotape called Smack'em Whack'em, which you should actually go and watch this. It's actually pretty good. <laughs> but Bret Hart beats Ric Flair for the belt. Headed into WrestleMania 9, you've got Yokozuna winning the Royal Rumble. So the main event of WrestleMania 9 is set. It's Bret Hart versus Yokozuna. Now, as everyone knows, thanks to some interference from Mr. Fuji, Bret actually loses the belt to Yokozuna. And immediately after, Hulk Hogan challenges Yokozuna to a championship match, which Hulk Hogan wins in a squash. Now, in one of the worst periods of wrestling history, we then go from WrestleMania 9 to King of the Ring with Hulk Hogan as WWF champion, despite never appearing on Raw or Superstars. All he did was do some pre-taped vignettes from the set of whatever film he was working on at the time and then he turned up at King of the Ring just to drop the belt to Yokozuna while Brett would go on to win the King of the Ring tournament as a sort of apology for how screwed he got at WrestleMania. I'm sure as everyone has heard the story and we don't need to go on about it too much but there was a lot of different scenarios that were decided between Bret Hart, 
Hulk Hogan and Yokozuna that were supposed to result in basically Brett fighting Hogan for the belt and beating him and it was supposed to be this massive passing of the torch moment but because Hulk Hogan is a bit of an asshole he sort of just vetoed the whole thing and it was terrible so down the line a little bit we get to the Royal Rumble which I mentioned earlier of course Bret Hart joint won the Royal Rumble with Lex Luger which was his sort of ticket into the main event of Wrestlemania uh, as a result of the coin toss which I explained earlier Brett wrestled in the first match and also got to wrestle in the final match for the WWF Championship him and Yoko have had a, another little bit of history on the way to the match as well of course at the Survivor Series showdown which is a bit like the pre-event to the Survivor Series it airs like a few days before and it's sort of like uh, it's almost like the go home raw if it wasn't on Raw, it's just like a go home show, as it well, as it were. Bret Hart had a singles match with Yokozuna, and Owen Hart came out to help Bret and inadvertently caused the disqualification. But during the ongoing feud he had with Owen, he'd gone to win the Royal Rumble alongside Lex. He came face to face with Lex on the 31st of January edition of Raw. He said, "Under no circumstances could I wish Yokozuna any luck." But I consider you a real opponent and it would be a real honour to tie up with you in the last match of WrestleMania 10. Now, as we know, as a result of the coin toss, Brett goes into the main event. And because Lex has lost his title match, our main event, Yokozuna versus Bret Hart, is set in stone. That's right. And Yokozuna in firm control early on in this one. Wasting no time, jumps Brett who goes through the ropes. Start exchanging punches. A funny bit, I thought, where both guys effectively collapse from exhaustion, especially after Brett headbutts Yokozuna. They both just fall down. That was quite funny. Cornette as well knocks Spark out by Piper after dragging Piper from the ring. That's just something you don't do. You don't annoy Roddy Piper. Come on. So I like how glorious Cornette sells the punch that Roddy Piper gives him. He doesn't flail about. He just crumbles to the deck. Yeah, very unique way of selling at this point. Certainly one of Cornette's strong points as well, getting heat as well as his promos. Um, one thing I did notice, Yoko's and his leg drops, they look absolutely terrifying. Yeah, I, I, I think I said before, I can't remember if this was in 95 or in one of the other episodes we've done, but I think that Yoko's and his leg drop is better than Hulk Hogan's leg drop. Oh yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. More likely to cripple you right enough. Probably because Yoko's and his leg is bigger than Hulk Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> certainly after the steroid trial it's certainly bigger than 1993 Hulk Hogan oh yeah certainly that's something we've covered as well just how skinny Hogan is post steroids just ridiculous Brett tries a double axe handle gets counted into a belly to belly suplex Yokozuna goes for the banzai in the corner going up to the finish here loses balance falls down in the banzai attempt Brett makes the cover for the three count we have a new WF champion but I thought it was a pretty weak finish, not certainly not one of Brett's better matches. I almost sort of ignored the finish because I enjoyed the match. Like There was a good bit of back and forth. I thought that Yoko did a great job for someone who'd already wrestled earlier in that night and was generally quite an unfit human being, was always a bit gassed. I loved that all the way to the end of the event, you didn't really know if Brett was really going to win. Like, I know the crowd, and I know we, we, you know, we can look back in hindsight, but, like, they made a good job of making it look like Yoko could actually win. Like, Yoko got in his big belly-to-belly, as you said. Another little point that I loved, did you hear when Vince and King mentioned that Brett and Piper fought at WrestleMania a few years ago? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, Brett 
defeated Roddy Piper for the Intercontinental Championship, I think, at WrestleMania 7. I can't remember because it was like a terrible WrestleMania. And they speculate if that could play a factor into the match. And there's actually an argument to be made that it does. Like, Roddy at one point gives an extremely fast 10 count after Yoko throws Brett to the outside. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> this could happen. But yeah, just... I hated the finish because I, I don't know anyone could love that finish. All the way through the match, I was just like, how can Brett beat this man? Like, what move is he going to do? He can't do the sharpshooter. He, he can't finish it with his second rope elbow. I was just like, how is this going to happen? Yeah. And then I was a little bit sad that it's just Yoko losing his balance and Brett pinning him. I think that the aftermath of the match made up for the poor ending. Yeah, I mean, that's what everyone sort of remembers it for, isn't it? The faces come out, the lift up Brett. Before that, obviously, so we get Luger coming out, tentative handshake between the two. But after the faces come out, we of course see arguably the shot of the night. Owen Hart at the entranceway, backed into the camera, looking on as his brother becomes WF champion. It's always so hard for a younger brother to accept the glory that is an older brother. You know, I, I really do feel for Brett here, you know what I mean? Because as was commonplace back in the day, all the faces come out to congratulate the big triumphant face and yes, we did it, you know, America, you know, Canada. Canada beats the foreign power. Only for Owen to be like, but I beat you. Yeah. You know, this was meant to be my crowning moment. And the night's ended with you standing with, you know, the richest prize in the industry. And you just see the frustration in his eyes. And it's such a well-told story, I think. A better story than Fat Guy Foz. Um, <laughs> I honestly don't think Yokozuna is deserving of a Hall of Fame induction. And I would honestly put it to anybody that Yokozuna is the worst booked WWF champion of all time. Wow. Oh, a thousand percent. I was going to say, like, I think Yokozuna has no place in the main event scene whatsoever at all. And this match just proves it. Yeah, it's very, very disappointing. In terms of main main event level, pretty disappointing match. But, I mean... It does establish what it was meant to do, put Brett over as, as the guy, as we mentioned at the start, and as the new WF champion. Mm, and obviously yeah. continue and obviously continue the feud with Owen as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I actually nearly missed it because I was responding to a text. I'm like, like, I knew he fell for the rope, but I thought Brett did something like after it. So like when mm. he, he fell for the rope, I went, right, I'll quickly respond to this text. And I just kind of heard the three count. I was like, wait, no, I need to rewind that. I missed it. Are you being serious? Yokozuna, along with Mabel, is very much a product of the steroid trial era where they needed big, big guys who clearly went on steroids. But, you know, being on Colonel Sanders' chicken isn't any better for the main event scene. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know what you're saying about Yoko and how he shouldn't be a main eventer, but I think that, see, if you go back and watch that King of the Ring where Yoko beats Hulk Hogan and, like, for the most part, it's like a clean win, except for the actual finish with the cameraman and the fireball and all that. Like, from then, I was convinced that Yokozuna was like a big deal. I don't think it's the idea that it's a great, he's a great wrestler. It's, I think it's the idea that like any wrestler that he faces, they can't knock him down. Like, that is his gimmick. Mm. It's like, you can't knock Yokozuna down, so Yokozuna's going to beat you. I actually loved this WrestleMania from start to finish. I know that there's a lot of absolute nonsense in it but I mean essentially I've been saving watching this for like 25 years I've known that it's existed in the back of my mind for ages and I've seen the first nine and I've seen almost all of the Wrestlemania since 16 so this was like a total diamond in the rough for me 
I thought that the storytelling the whole night with Brett and Owen is just beautiful. Even at the end, like you said, like Owen's thinking that the whole night he like he's come out of WrestleMania on top. He's managed to prove himself. As I said earlier, like Owen's not being a heel. He just wants to beat his brother. And then still Brett manages to steal the spotlight from him at the close of the show and you can you can see the anger. It's like he's like his mouth is like moving but no words are coming out. He's in such disbelief. Something I always go on about on the Monday Night Rewinds is that it's the ability to interweave all their storylines amongst different groups of wrestlers that wrestling shines the brightest. Like, they did it brilliantly tonight. They had Yokozuna, Lex, Brett, even Crush, Savage, Mr. Perfect, Roddy Piper all playing a part of this one big storyline. I forgot about how significant the ladder match was until I watched it and I was just like, oh my God, that was phenomenal. I didn't even notice till after the show. I was like, oh, Undertaker wasn't on it because he's still injured of course he is and I was like like they didn't even need Undertaker for the star power I thought just in general that the up and down roller coaster of the whole pay-per-view was fantastic you had low points to sort of you know get you excited for what was coming up and stuff like the mixed tag match and yeah just as I said I didn't love the final move of Yokozuna but I can live without it based on the rest of it. it this whole event for me just proved that the WWF have the ability to adapt to a world without Hogan. Obviously it would it would go downhill from here in my opinion, but I just I think this might actually be one of the best WrestleMania's ever. I I disagree with the the best mania ever. I certainly would say that the whole storyline of Brett and Owen and as Chris mentioned, interweaving <laughs> other matches and people with it. It's something great, you know, it's they didn't manage to recreate that until like maybe WrestleMania 30, where the entire night was like, will Brian beat Triple H? Now, will Brian be okay? You know, the Shield taking on the Outlaws and Kane were sort of getting the heavies out of the way, you know, if Brian could make the main event, but obviously not as well as the whole, you know, Yokozuna, Lex Luger sort of thing. But, you know, it took 20 years to even even recreate a semblance of that story. So, you know, I can see why it's so fondly remembered. I did enjoy the ladder match. I enjoyed Crush Savage, and I enjoyed Brett versus Owen was amazing. Just you know, when it's the WWF title match and it's the main event of WrestleMania, I think you always remember the last thing you see on the card. And for me, that's why I was like, no, this, this wasn't up to much. Yeah, that's the kind of exact same reason for me. I was I, for me, it has the best main event of all time. There's like some solid matches in the card. Probably one of the best ladder matches. They kind of it sets everything else off for the continental title. But that the main event just sours everything for me. Yeah, I mean, I'd say like yeah, I don't think I'd put up there as one of the greatest WrestleManias. But at the same time, a lot of stuff during this time in WF was absolute guff. And I think this is actually pretty good, especially for the time. I thought it was really good. The two main matches that get all the plaudits: the bet one opener and the ladder match are enough to put this in this meaning into the category of one of the best, I think. Because, I mean, Bam Bam and Luna against Doink and Dink, I thought it was, it was pretty funny at points. It wasn't bad. Even Men in Mission versus Quebecers, it was, I mean, the end was a bit stupid, but it was still fairly entertaining. The good certainly outweighed the bad, I think. So if you, if you put it up against what the 90s had produced so far, right, you had Hogan versus Warrior, which I almost put, like, in the 80s, because it was very much the closing of an 80s period of wrestling so that was uh yeah, wrestlemania like a lot of people do as well yeah. yeah so that was six i think in 1990 but then from 91 
to this in 94, you had Slaughter versus Hogan, Sid versus Hogan, Zuna versus Hogan, as well as Zuna versus Brett, and then Brett versus Zuna. Uh, I think it's probably the best one of the 90s, at least. I mean, from here on out, you've got, obviously, Bam Bam versus Lawrence Taylor next year, which I think is like the biggest load of bollocks I've ever seen in my life. I pure, I pure hate it, even though I'm an NFL fan. There's Brett versus Sean, which I personally really, really don't enjoy. And then you've got that uh, weird Psycho Sid versus Undertaker mania before you hit like the, you know, Shawn Michaels Stone Cold Rock uh, era. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I just think that like for a low point of wrestling, it's just such a highlight for me. But you know, we wouldn't have done this podcast to just sit and agree with each other. <laughs> Yeah, so you're a person on the internet with a different opinion for me. I must go after you. Yoko Suna going out. This is it. The hitman Brad Arnold start moving. Wait a minute, he's losing his balance. He just lost his balance on the road. What? He hit his head. Two, three. No! No! We have a new champion. No way! Brad This says it all. This says that I am everything I said I am. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. The excellence of execution. And so that note... We'll be back next time with another Retro Rewind. Ross, Jack, do you want to introduce what choice you've made? Yeah, so obviously this match, is, this pay-per-view we just reviewed was 10 years in the making. So we thought we'd go back to where it all begins again, which is mm. when WrestleMania returns to Madison Square Garden 10 years later, WrestleMania 20. A up and down card, but when you look at this card on paper, it features John Cena, Goldberg, Brock Lesnar, The Rock, Kane, Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Triple H, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Shawn Michaels, Kurt Angle and Eddie Guerrero. Like, wow. it's that sort of pay-per-view where you're like, you know, when you were a kid making your own pay-per-views on general manager mode, a kid playing with your wrestlers, you know, it's, it's basically got every big superstar minus maybe Edge and Sting of the Monday Night Wars era. Ric Flair's on it, Batista's on it, Randy Orton's on it, Mick Foley's on it. There's just, there's so many people on it. And I think the fact to use chose 10, we'll go 10 years later and just kind of go full circle. We get Playboy evening gown matches in ours as well, so. <laughs> exactly, yes. It's like the last big hurrah for certain Attitude Era people. And it's the first sort of introduction to the sort of ruthless aggression, guys. It's a very much as WrestleMania 10. It could also be seen as a transitional pay-per-view for certain people. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know what? If we're doing 10, we need to do 20. Yeah, I mean, my, just thinking back, my memories that WrestleMania 20 are pretty good. So I'm looking forward to rewatching. So yeah, on that note, we'll, uh, we'll end it there, guys. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, just the message to all our listeners out there, stay safe during these difficult times. We've got to try to get as many more content as we can from our main feed on Eat Sleep Super X Retweet and our Super X Retweet Extra feed. Ross, you've just released four new retro reviews. 
we've released King of the Ring, SummerSlam, Unforgiven and No Mercy. So you've got Retro View, Raw Report, yourself and Jack as well. Yes, I'm everywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> For myself, Chris, Ross, Jack, stay safe out there. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Retweet, Facebook. Stay safe and join us next time on the Retro Viewing. <laughs>